This podcast is for information purposes only and is not and should not be construed as professional advice or an offer or commitment by any Rabobank group member to enter into a transaction. The views expressed by the presenter and or guest are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Rabobank. Please see the podcast description for our full disclaimer. Welcome to Rabo Talks Growing Our Future, where we talk to experts from both here in New Zealand and across the world to bring New Zealand farmers and growers the information they need to make informed strategic decisions about the future direction of their business to ensure they continue to thrive in a fast-changing world. FMG Young Farmer of the Year is the flagship event for the New Zealand Young Farmers and it's held in high esteem among the rural community. Every year, around 300 contestants battle it out for the top spot. I'm your host today, Katie Rodwell, and on today's episode, we're lucky enough to have Tim Danjan, the winner of the Young Farmer of the Year 2022. Tim spent the last 12 months as an advocate for the sector, and we explore what he's learned during this time, and he leaves us with some good food for thought. Tim challenges us to think about how we're giving opportunities to the young leaders in our sector and how we best support them to thrive. There's plenty of great takeaways, so enjoy this episode. Cool, Tim, um, so great to have you with us today and welcome to Growing Our Future podcast. Hey, Katie, good to be here. Thank you. So hard work and talent must run in the bloodline, eh, with two young farmer of the years in the family? (laughs) <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, hard work probably does, but not sure about talent, Katie, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, Tim, um, before we crack into it, we like our guests to introduce themselves to the listeners and just give a bit of insight into your background and your career to date. So if you could do that for us, it'd be awesome. Yeah, no worries. So my name's Tim Dangin. I'm a beef farmer in Mirawai, West Auckland, where I was born and raised on the family farm there. Went to a city school, Massey High School, and never really knew what I wanted to do growing up. Always obviously had an interest in farming, but I was never sort of pushed in any direction by my parents, which was quite nice that I ended up sort of falling into farming anyway. So ended up going down to Lincoln University, did a BCom Ag down there, uh, which sort of flowed on to my first proper job as a dairy farm assistant down in Southland. Uh, working for Simon and Janine Hopcroft down there, who were sort of instrumental in my life now, looking back on it. So I ended up staying down there for about two years and sort of worked my way up to a farm manager position before sort of getting to a crossroad where I had to decide if I wanted to commit to Southland and contract milk down there or sort of return back to the family farm. So I made the decision to move back up to Mirawai and my wife-to-be was also up here. So made the decision a bit easier um, and moved back to the family farm and yeah we sort of looked at the farming system and how we're going to try and stay here long term basically it's quite difficult farming on the outskirts of a city although our customer base is close we sort of have inflated prices basically Mm. Uh, so we pay an Auckland premium for all of our input costs but generally only get the -the run-of-the-mill output prices like every other farmer in the country so we sort of had a big look at the farming system and thought, what can we do here to try and leverage off some of our advantages? And we ended up settling on a sort of calf rearing system. So we started for rear calves and we're selling basically to local lifestyle blocks, largely. A few sort of commercial farms, but we're sort of charging a bit of a premium by selling to these lifestyle blocks. And we sort of built the calf rearing business up from there. And yeah, we're now, well, not this year because our bloody shed blew down the cyclone, but oh. <laughs> we now rear about a 1,000 beef cross calves and we sort of lease another 200 hectares of beef finishing around the district. So, yeah, that's our system in a nutshell, but 
I live in condensed living in a townhouse in Hobsonville, West Auckland, with my wife Jenny. She works for New Zealand in town there, and yeah, I'm the, I'm the city farmer basically, but float between the lease blocks and the home farm, and yeah, it keeps me pretty busy, Katie. Nice, such a unique setup. I love the kind of city town mix. It's quite unique and not something that we hear much of. Tim, I'm keen to cover off today what you've learned over the past 12 months in your role as Young Farmer of the Year. But before we get there, what I'd like to do is kind of dive into when and how did your own farm sustainability journey begin and what were some of the kind of key drivers behind your focus on sustainability and, and what, it, what even does sustainability mean to you, I guess, in your unique farming system? Yeah, sure. So I guess my parents have probably always had a bit of a green finger to them. So we're surrounded by a huge piece of native bush, which is probably our biggest asset, provides us a lot of privacy, but also gives us a few challenges as well. And so I think my parents were probably the main drivers in our sustainability journey and that we've been fortunate enough that our rivers have been fenced off for about 20 odd years now. So there's a lot of foresight from my parents and even my grandparents that they knew that we sort of had to farm in, in harmony with the native bush around us, which is now sort of one of our biggest assets. And so I suppose where I sort of came in was around financial sustainability and that you know, for us to stay where we are long term, we have to be able to make money, don't we? And it's the same for every farmer. And that's, that's sort of where it starts out, I think. You know, we all have great intentions and we want to be able to put as much towards our sustainability projects as possible. If having that financial backing, isn't it, to have the confidence to invest in, in these areas because there's no point doing it if you're just going to end up going broke and leaving the property anyway. So that's probably where my contribution has come in, I suppose, is, is around looking at our financial model as a whole and saying, crikey, how can we um, afford to stay here long-term type thing? So ongoing from that, then we've sort of, because a lot of the fencing's already been done, we've sort of moved more into biodiversity projects. So we've got trapping plans and things like that on the farm that we're sort of starting to build up. Um, obviously, being next to a huge piece of native bush, we have a lot of pests that come with that. So that's probably where I, th- I think our long-term sustainability opportunities are is around enhancing biodiversity as a whole on our place and sort of playing a, a community role there. Luckily, by being close to the city, there are a lot of old people around with lots of time on their hands. So, <laughs> so there's yeah, there's some really good community trapping programs that are going, and and we just make sure that we you know we're not a barrier to that. That you know we give give people um, access to our property when needed and things like that to run trapping lines and stuff. But yeah, as as a whole, I think sustainability to me it sort of ticks all those pillars around environmental, social and financial, doesn't it? You know, we have to be ticking all of those boxes to be a successful business long-term. And and so that's sort of how I see it and and how I think it plays out for us long-term. It's always the balance there between those three pillars. Like the challenge is balancing them at Mm. all times. I think financially comes first out of the three, doesn't it? It's something that we often forget about. It's At the end of the day, it's farmers' own money that's been invested. So we need to make sure that they're not sort of suffering in their personal lives at the benefit of of an environmental agenda. Yeah, you've got to have a viable business to be able to then give back to the community or enhance the environment or all those kind of things. You mentioned before that the the native bush on your farm is your biggest asset. Can you just explain what you mean there? Like, what what do you mean by that? Well, it gives us privacy, which is (laughs) very important. On the fringes of the city? (laughs) Being on the fringes of the city, yeah. I I certainly don't think there's like an urban-rural divide or anything like that, but if it's a ratio game, isn't it, that if you have a 1,000 people drive past your farm, you're bound to get one 
who has something to say <laughs> about what you're doing, isn't it? So <laughs> it's just a percentage game. But yeah, by us having that privacy there, then it's sort of, you know, when I'm on the farm, I don't know that, you know, there's 1.4 million people that are only half an hour away. Mm. It's, yeah, we, we still feel like we're in a rural setting. And so I can feel like I'm a genuine farmer and, and, and that we can sort of go about the things that we want to do on farm without having too many people look over my back. So that's a huge asset by by having the balance of, the, you know, in terms of lifestyle and access to market by being close to the city, but still maintain that privacy is yeah, crucial for our, our business long term. Tim, obviously you were crowned Young Farmer of the Year last year. What was your motivation to apply and be part of that competition? And looking back now over the last 12 months, what were the sort of like, let's go with five key things that, that you learnt? I think my motivation was I'm quite competitive, so I do like to test myself against other people. But the real driver was that it was a growth exercise for me, Katie, that I was sort of pushed into entering by my former boss, Simon Hopcroft, down in the south, and he was the 2004 grand final winner. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he was the one that sort of really got me into the, the club and contest. And I think after my first competition, I think I got second at the regional final, which I was stoked with at the time. But I just learned so much and got to learn all these new skills and test all these sort of little nooks and crannies that I sort of don't normally apply myself towards. And, and, and I think that's something that, everyone can take from the contest is that when you're when you farming, you get in your wheelhouse and you start to become really good at, inside your business and, and work away at the things that immediately affect you, but you sort of stop to test and grow yourself in those other areas. And so that's where I started to sort of really enjoy some of those personal benefits and that's what sort of kept me going in the, in the contest long term. And it took me four regional finals to get through to the grand final. So I think that sort of shows that even though I wasn't winning, I was still having a good enough time and getting enough out of it to keep pursuing with it. But in terms of what I've seen over the last year, crock, I don't know if I'll give you five things concisely enough or not. <laughs> Just whatever, but, whatever yeah. comes to mind. Like, What are the key takeaways or things that you've seen? Yeah, so from a broader sense, I've seen an overwhelmingly positive view on the contest and the prestige that, that it holds, not only within the rural community, but within our urban community as well, that People love the Young Farmer of the Year and they love the contest and, and the skills that get displayed and the characters that it throws out, I think. So that's been really neat to see. And it's been particularly reassuring from our urban community, I think, that because I've had access to go and talk in lots of schools and public events and things like that, that just the high regard that the urban population in large holds for our farmers and growers. And that, you know, I say this to a lot of people, I'd like, or a lot of farmers, that I'd like to think of, if there was an urban-rural divide and anyone was to know, it would probably be someone like me who's a farmer but still immersed in the city and, and close enough to the urban population that if there was a real bad vibe out there, I think I'd know, but there just isn't. There's the vast, vast majority of urban folk hold our farmers and growers in such high regard that we often... I just don't think we know that enough and, and that, you know, it's really easy to follow a negative headline or, or a negative narrative and, and think, oh, crocky, you know, people don't value the importance of what we do, but they, they genuinely do. And every time I, I meet someone and tell them that I'm a farmer, you know, they think one of the first things that they always say is, oh, crocky, you guys, you know, you guys were so good during COVID, like you kept the country ticking and, you know, we got up to 80, 82%, I think, of export revenue during those COVID years. So it just sort of, even though COVID wasn't good for much, what, what it did do was highlight the importance of the rural sector and, and just reminded everyone, I think, that the key role that it has to play within our country and 
just how important it is. So, so that's been been really reassuring to see. Um, I think it's quite nice to challenge that. I'd say it's probably a group think around the urban-rural divide because people sort of talk about it and then it becomes a thing. And I think it's it's really nice to hear your insight being so close to the city and being on the farm to hear that, like, you just haven't experienced that. Yeah, definitely. Like, and, and, like, I'm not saying it's like there aren't those extremists out there that want to, you know, <laughs> take us down, but, <laughs> like, the vast, vast majority of, you know, middle New Zealand, just normal Kiwis, they love us. So, so we need to make sure that we don't sort of fabricate something there ourselves and and start to... um you know, nearly create a negative mindset towards them, which will probably fuel more people to be negative towards us. You know, I think it's like a, it's a leadership opportunity for the rural sector really to to be able to look at this and, and say, you know, we are united and we are, you know, one country all trying to push in the same direction. So yeah. that has been really pleasing to see. There's, there's also been a few opportunities for, I think, the sector that I've picked up on that I don't think we incorporate enough young people and leadership opportunities early enough, I'd love to see, you know, we're starting to see quite a few boards pop up with those associate director roles, but there should be three or four of those on every board, Katie, and I think that it's something that's been quite obvious is that people love the insight of young people and they love hearing, you know, like I've had the opportunity to tell the story and have, and have input whether or not it's having influence or not, I'm not sure. But um, at least I've been at, <laughs> at least I've been able to chuck it out there. So you know, I think that there's something really obvious there that we're missing, and that's the tree's gotten a little bit pointy in some places, and that it needs to be filtering down. And I'd like to see the, you know, I think there's a leadership opportunity for the people at the top to actually not only invite these young people in to sit around the table, but actually seek out and, and find them and, and pull them in because. I think if you ask any director or any CEO of, of any decent business or, or company that if they had another five years of experience behind them, would they be better off? And I think they'd all say absolutely. So so it's just about trying to sort of change that mindset of, of that we have to be able to incorporate young people earlier to be able to just give them the experience. And even if they don't contribute anything, if you sit around the board table at a Fonterra meeting for two or three years without saying a word, you'd definitely get something out of it, wouldn't you? So. I think there are opportunities there for sure. As a leader yourself, what can we start to do to help that? Because whilst, you know, we'd like to see that leadership from older leaders, how can we start to develop that? Like, what's your thinking around that? It's nearly a cultural thing that I'm sure there are countries out there that do it far better than us and that we've somehow got that old school mindset of you sort of do your time, you pick up the experience and you sort of chip away and you get there when it's your turn type thing. Whereas... I think because the world's changing so quickly and rapidly that we have to have that innovation and fresh thought process brought in as frequently as possible. So the real opportunity and, and the chance for that leadership is, is for the people in senior roles to identify that and say that bring these young people in wherever possible and just have them present to be able to sit around the table and just listen in and they'll chuck out the odd piece of gold and at least they're gaining that experience and so that when you know, their time does come that they're sort of getting a head start. Like it's just it's just logical succession, I, I think, that that we sort of need to incorporate somehow. And, and it's, you know, I, I'm not saying that all, this is because I see some, I've seen groups do it fantastically, but this is just a sort of broader sense that I think we could improve on. So that's the sort of challenges is out there for, for our senior leaders to be able to incorporate young people wherever possible. And I'd love to see them paid because I think they can add value. 
But if they can't be paid, then then the next best thing is to have these sort of associate director roles and things like that and, and just increase the volume of them because, crikey, we've got some fantastic young leaders out there that are sort of hidden away in little pockets around our rural communities that have got real value to add that they just sort of need an invitation to the door rather than having to find the door themselves sometimes because a lot of them don't. Yeah. Anything, Tim, that surprised you over the year, like any views that really challenged your own thinking? Probably just that lack of young people out there (laughs) in the decision-making process, Katie, I think. Yeah, that was probably the only thing that surprised me or challenged me. Because, you know, you sort of chip away on farm and you sort of think that there's this sort of elite group of people that are out there making these decisions and and things and you think that it's all been handled really well. And then I've sort of gotten out there and gone in and thought, crikey, there's there's room to improve here, (laughs) you know. So I I think that's probably the only thing. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm not, you know, there's some fantastic things going on in our sector. It's just I'm I'm looking for the, you know, 1% or 2% gains and where they come from now. So I think that's probably the only area that, that has sort of challenged me a little bit and that it is quite hard to get at the table in these situations. Like I was fortunate that the Young Farmers platform gave me these opportunities because I don't think without it I probably ever would have gotten a look in, you know. So that's probably been the only real thing that jumps to mind. And it's like not everyone obviously can be the winner of the Young Farmer of the Year. So how do you open up those opportunities to people that aren't doing the competition but still have amazing value to add to the industry? Yeah, totally. And I know many farmers that are, are much better farmers than me that are young farmers that just haven't entered the contest for their own personal reasons or whatever that might go along unnoticed. And so it's about seeking out and finding these people and, and drawing them in, I think, Katie, to, to be able to say, look, we think you've got value to add. Come and sit with us at, at a few meetings and, and see what you can contribute. And there's sort of nothing to be gained or lost by anyone, I don't think. It's well, I think there's there's nothing to be lost. There's heaps to gain, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> have, yeah having someone at the tables, you know, it's no skin off anyone's nose, really. Absolutely. That, yeah, that's that's my poor turn of phrase there. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I knew what you were meaning. There's a lot of opportunity, yeah. Yeah. Um, what can other young farmers start doing to ensure that they're well set up for a future that's frequently changing, Tim? Yeah, that's a good question. It's quite a... A big question, isn't it, Katie? And it's probably more relevant than ever, I think. I think adding to your skill set is probably the main one. And I don't just mean like practical on-farm skills or, you know, being able to share or crunch really fast. You know, all those things are important as well because you want to keep growing. But all the mental skills, I think, that are becoming more and more important these days around your personal well-being and, and making sure that we keep this resilience ticking along and that skill set is becoming more important, I think, than some of our practical skills on farms. So, yeah, that, that would be my, my piece of advice is that you never stop growing and that as long as you're always contributing to your skill set, then I think you, you're going forward and you feel like you're progressing and join your local Young Farmers Club. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, like, what, what would be your advice to enable that kind of growth around your soft skills like what what can people do where can they go who can they talk to obviously young farmers as a as a start yeah it's a great start it's about self-evaluation really isn't it it's about looking at yourself and no one's perfect and and trying to maximize the things or skills that you're really good at or the personal attributes that that you're really strong in and then just try and flatten out and, and lift up those areas where you might be weak isn't it and so that course is going to be different for every person isn't it and so it's trying to 
have the confidence, I suppose, to reach out and sort of target those areas to grow yourself in. And, and that was something that was really good for me at Young Farmers is that, you know, straight away you're thrown into a group of people who all have different backgrounds, all have different skill sets. And you sort of just push and lean off each other quite a bit, don't you? So you start to leverage off each other's strong points. And yeah, I think that's that's a really powerful tool. And the Young Farmers Club and organisation has got a huge role to play in bringing our young people through in the sector, don't they? So I promote the club at every every opportunity I can. <laughs> I think it's got just got a really critical role to play in, in attracting young people towards the primary sector. So that's where I started, but yeah, it'd be different for everyone else and every every strength that they want to pursue, I suppose. And Tim, um, what do you think the value of having mentors are? I mean, I'm presuming you've obviously got some mentors in, in your life. Um, I know that they've, for me, mentors have played a massive role in supporting me and my thinking. What's the value for you in, in that space? Yeah, mentors are, you know, the most crucial part of your team, I think, Katie, that they give you the opportunity to be able to skip the mistakes that you would have otherwise had to have made yourself and find out the hard way and and learn from. So Simon's an obvious one for me that when I was in Southland, we just, you know, matched up personality-wise anyways, you know, enjoys a beer on a Friday night and or a gin rather. And we just really clicked and we sort of, well, he took me under his wing really and, and he got me going in the Young Farmers and, and we still keep in touch every month. We'll give each other a, a bell and it's just given me the confidence, I suppose, to pursue some of these other opportunities and, and go through with the Young Farmers stuff and they're critical, but they're often hard to find. And so there's, like if we're talking about other opportunities within the sector, there's the opportunity to, you know, somehow create like a network of these people that have the time to give. And even if it's only a call every six months, you, you can save a young person a lot of heartache by just allowing them to skip a few steps, I think. So it's about sort of if you've got the time, maybe there's something there that if, if you're an older farmer, you could connect with your local young farmers club and say, is there anyone new in the area that, you know, needs a talking voice, you know, an ear to listen to or, or whatever when they're starting out within the region just to, help with some simple things. And, and for young people coming into the sector, I think young people these days are pretty fragile. So we have to be able to wrap that support around them wherever possible. But doing the old, oh, I did it hard in my day, so they should do it hard and learn that way. It's, it just doesn't fly anymore because there's too many different opportunities for them. And so they'll just, they'll just pivot and change. So there's something that we can do there as a sector so that when you get a young shepherd come in who might not know what a heading dog's worth, just being able to lend an ear to someone like that to say, oh, you shouldn't be paying eight grand for your heading dog. That's crazy. You're getting ripped off there, you know. So just like little simple things. Definitely. Or, or what's this? What's the starting wage for a dairy assistant? You know, or my, my boss is trying to get me to work eighteen on two off. Is that normal? You know, just li- little things like that. I think could go a long way, and and that's that's something that we can do better as a sector for sure. I think also like from an agribusiness lens, because obviously that's where I spend most of my career. Like just having a safe space to be able to soundboard with someone like just talk through what's going on in your mind what you're finding you're struggling with or you know just being able to communicate with someone in a safe way that's been through those experiences has been invaluable for me totally it's good to hear yeah yeah but I I totally agree with you like they are hard to find you know like everyone's living really busy lives being able to give some time to be able to talk to someone monthly although it sounds small it's hard to find 
Just before we wrap up, what do you think the future looks like? I know that's a massive question, but like if, if you zoomed yourself to 2050, what do you think our, our food and fibre sector looks like? I love this question because I think it's the most exciting one. I think it's quite simple and I think we sort of know what it needs to be and I think we even probably know how to get there. We just need to make it happen. But I, th- I think it's about value extraction and it's about us utilising technology to make sure that we're maximising the value out of all of the raw product that we produce because we are in a tech era. We're starting to see this technology come through faster and faster and it's about our farmers and growers having the skill set and confidence to be able to adopt it as quickly as possible. That's the key to, to us as primary producers long term is that you know, labour is always going to be a bit of a tough one for us. You know, it's always going to be reasonably expensive. And if we want to compete internationally, then I think we have to adopt this technology where possible and right across the supply chain. So I'm talking on-farm, but then post-farm gate, you know, in, in our manufacturing processes, we have to be able to make sure that we're bringing in technology to enable cheap value extraction here in New Zealand to be able to sell high-value products internationally. And I think if we can do that, then, yeah, correctly, the world's our oyster, isn't it? I think, you know, what do we send? 85% goes as raw product or something like that at the moment. So that's where the hidden potential is, isn't it? So, And that really excites me, Katie. I think it's like crikey. And especially for young people coming towards the sector at the moment, it's like come in with all your fresh idea and your ability to use technology and, you know, you, you try and get a young farmer to, to adopt a halter app, it's, it's no, no worries at the moment, you know. So I think that, that's quite exciting. Yeah, it feels like there's like so much opportunity. It's like brimming with opportunity. And whilst there are challenges, there's just as many opportunities, which is awesome. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Just before we finish, any kind of key messages or takeaways before we wrap up? For any young people out there listening, get involved in Young Farmers Club wherever possible. The good thing about the club is that it's flexible and, and, and it is whatever you want to make it. So if it's currently in a form or system that you don't like, go in there and change it, you know, <laughs> or bring some fresh ideas into it. And, and to any sort of older quotation marks, fathers, <laughs> so over 31, which is the Young Farmers criteria. <laughs> yeah, I think there's huge opportunity for us to bring young people in wherever we can. And I'm not just talking about the on boards of companies, I'm talking about within our own personal farming businesses is, is give our, our young employees a chance to sit at the table and see how we make decisions and allow them to learn and grow from it. And I think ultimately it's about building strong succession within our sector and, and resilience within our, our labour market so that we can continue to be world-leading food producers. But yeah, as a whole, the weather up here has been shit, prices are shit, but... <laughs> You're still smiling. Still smiling. Farming is great. We've got to make sure that we enjoy the good days uh, because the sun always comes out and and those are the days that make it all worth it, isn't it? You only need one in 50 of them to be good to make the the whole year seem good. So we need to make sure that we keep enjoying what we're doing as well. Love it. Tim, thank you so much. I think that for me, the... The kind of theme that's been threaded throughout this conversation is the importance of succession, whether that looks like mentors, allowing young people at tables, fostering the kind of talent that we've got in our industry and and making sure we extract value from that. So thank you so much for your time. It's been lovely and so nice to catch up with you and um, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Awesome. Cheers, Katie. Thank you for listening to Talks Growing Our Future podcast. If you're interested in learning more about how Rabobank can support you to succeed into the future, please go to rabobank.co.nz.